today's episode where we have Eric Reppel, who currently works at Coinbase, and Robert Reppel, our CTO at Adapt. Welcome. Hey, good to be here. Yeah. All right. Hi, guys. Hello, Robert. Hi, Adam. <laughs> nice to have you on our podcast, Robert. Hey, you're most welcome, uh, Adam. <laughs> Long time no see, like yesterday. <laughs> yes. Yes. Exactly. So today's episode is going to be focused on Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and blockchain technologies. Maybe we can start off with some definitions of what's going around. There's a lot of terms thrown around in the industry right now. People are using ICOs to raise money instead of traditional venture capital. What has happened in the industry over the last year? Eric, maybe you can give us an idea of how the industry is now versus last year and what's happened with the cryptocurrency buzz. Uh, there was a headline, I think, by someone. There was a headline last September. Uh, Have we reached peak blockchain bubble hype? And little did they know we were going to exceed any expectations of that. Basically, crypto essentially in the last year is uh, the price of Bitcoin's 4x, the price of Ethereum's 20x. Uh, all markets are up. And it's we're on a we're currently in a hype cycle of crypto where uh, it's it's semi unprecedented, right? Like it's it's a it's a huge boon, and in fact, so much so that um, more money has been raised in the last so far this year via ICOs than through typical angel investment. I believe that the numbers, are, I believe approximately one point four billion dollars has been raised through ICOs so far this year. Um, I think it's like one point two, but don't don't quote me on the angel on the uh, angel figures. I've heard that too for the, I think for the months of uh, June and July, those were the first, that's the first time in history that uh, crypto has surpassed traditional investments for startups at least. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's really obvious why, why that would be the case, right? Like if you're an investor, I suppose have a huge upside in, in terms of its immediate liquidity in your investment. You can invest in the currency uh, and then sell from the day after you sell it. As long as the token's functional or the coin is functional, you can sell an hour later if you find out something new where you're like, I don't, I don't believe in this anymore. Um, and that's not something that typical angel investing gets even close to, right? Right. And in fact, with a lot of these uh, ICOs, uh, you see, like, especially where you have closed cap sale ICOs, so ICOs where they only sell a certain number of coins, uh, everyone who invests in the ICO immediately, like, 3x's, 4x's their money because the token which they just bought uh, goes on to liquidity or Bitfinex or some other exchange and then people buy it for 3, 4, 5x the price. Um, there's a token sale which occurred last week called 0x which I actually think was one of the best structured token sales I've seen so far. We can get into why I think that uh, later if you want but if you would have bought 0x on in the crowd sale which anyone could have uh, there was no cap. There was no whales trying to take out like the entire market share. Uh, you you're, you would have 10x your money in a week. Right. And that kind of hype is why people like, why ICOs are like everyone and everyone and their dog is trying to ICO right now. So that obviously must have uh, the traditional institutions up in arms. And uh, we had some uh, news uh, with the SEC recently that the uh, uh, 
basically where they have to step up to to get in on uh, companies trying to circumvent the traditional models and uh, m- mostly probably due to taxation and other things. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so I, I obviously don't have the full legal context on that. But from what I understand, um, the ICO, ICO, the SEC, sorry, not the SEC, the SEC's ruling can roughly be defined as uh, not all ICOs are securities, but some ICOs are definitely securities. And so people who fall into that category of they're doing an ICO and the SEC thinks that they're using a security, not a good thing. That's uh, it's probably not a place you want to be sitting. Um, and so they give the, the main thing that they're ruling on was some, an event called the DAO, which was really the first ICO which ever occurred uh, and is famous in the crypto realm because it led to the s- splitting of the Ethereum network. So uh, you ended up with two chains. And the reason why that happened is because the DAO had a hack in it which caused, uh, which caused I think, 30 million? Let me look it up. But that uh, that really wasn't a hack. Was it, wasn't it just a badly structured uh, contract that someone found the loophole in and legally got uh, that money and was also quite good about it and said that people that want their money can have their money back and others were backing him up saying that, well, no, he didn't do anything illegal. This is your expensive lesson. Well, okay, so there's kind of... Uh, there's there's a few pieces to that. So first off, it was uh, fifty five million dollars, which was cracked in the in the DAO. Um, from my understanding, the DAO, uh, the contract in the DAO had an exploit in it, which allowed him to siphon the money. Right? Uh, and then so there were those people who thought this is a, I mean, immutable ledger and all that. The, the purpose of the blockchain is to be immutable. If someone finds this exploit, we should leave it in the history. Uh, Vitalik and the Ethereum Foundation decided to hard fork out of that scenario because I think at the time, I think, I believe that he, the hacker had managed to take almost 10% of all active Ether at the time, which is a huge event, right? Um, Vitalik and Vlad and everyone else in the Ethereum Foundation are still around and still active and have the ability to say, like, okay, guys, like, what do we think we should do here? Uh, that's not really a thing that you can do with Bitcoin because Doshi Nakamoto is probably dead. Um, but the consensus kind of emerged, and I believe like they held a vote, actually, I believe. And they had an overwhelming majority saying uh, that they wanted to actually hard fork out, which makes a lot of sense. And the result of that is there's two chains of Ethereum now. So there's Ethereum, which everyone knows, and there's also Ethereum Classic, where the DAO actually still happened. So right. if, if you had Ethereum tokens prior to the DAO occurring you have the same number of tokens both in Ethereum and in Ethereum Classic. Right. Um, so to get back to the SEC, the ruling for the DAO, from my understanding, and I, I could have this wrong, is that the one of the aspects which causes them to think that the DAO would have been a security is that there was a centralized pool of people uh, who all voting went through. So... For context, the DAO, the idea behind the DAO is that people are going to pool Ethereum resources, pool their Ether, and invest in companies. The first of which was called Slocket, which made an Ethereum-powered lock for your door. Um, so the idea is that everyone in this decentralized marketplace would vote on who they want to invest in, and then they would invest in the ones who were chosen. However, 
these proposals were filtered through a centralized group of people. Uh, the Dow Foundation, the Dow Board, I can't remember the exact term they call themselves. And because there was this filtering process and it wasn't completely decentralized, that, I believe, was what the SEC ruled upon made it a security. Right. Um, there's also some people that believe uh, the SEC is involved in making sure that uh, ICOs are not another face of a Ponzi scheme trying to sell uh, interest in a golf course that's not really made yet uh, and things like this. So uh, maybe are there examples that you know of where some organizations are trying to do this uh, to raise money with nothing behind it and uh, just based on uh, sales and hype yeah i mean no no one ever is going to be like like no one's ever like chuckling and uh behind the scenes twirling their mustache saying like oh we're gonna we're just gonna run off we're gonna take the bag and run off of the room's money but if you follow like ico trackers there's something like 10 a day they're not all gonna be real and here's the other thing is that in an ico it's actually very rare for a token to actually be functional on a network at the time it gets it gets released mm-hmm. so you have like this deferred responsibility right where you could have like the greatest intentions in the world when you ico and then you find something which prevents you from actually following through on your commitments right and so what are you going to do? give everyone their money back right that's some of it's already spent trying yeah, to move it's like, the company forward exactly yeah there there are things like Gollum and rep uh Gollum and auger rep is the token for auger um they're both things I think are going to be, they're both things I absolutely believe in, I think are going to be very successful, but their markets aren't live yet. You still can't actually use Rep or Gollum right. in any practical way. Zero right. X, which is the, I think, I think Zero X is currently the gold standard in terms of both execution on an ICO, how they, how they structured the ICO, and also you could, Zero X distributed their, uh, the tokens from their ICO using their own protocol. Like they dog fooded their own service. What Zero X is, is a protocol for a decentralized exchange. So you can exchange ERC20 tokens without any centralized entity. Um, and so they not only did their platform work when they ICO'd, they actually used their own protocol to send everyone the tokens which they had bought in that, which I think was really cool. Right. So they've used the idea of a, of, of a decentralized it's kind of a meta level, isn't it, for being providing a market itself or an exchange itself for things that are decentralized themselves. <laughs> to be clear, it's not a decentralized exchange. It's a protocol for exchange. Okay. So if you have to have an existing agreement with someone at a certain rate, right. uh, it isn't actually a marketplace. But if I wanted to send you five rep and you wanted to give me, I don't know, one ether for that, mm-hmm. I can't do the math in my head for what it would actually be, but um, we can do that decentralized, not going through anybody like Poloniex or Bitfinex or right. uh, anything like that, right? Um, and that's a huge advantage because that's uh, that's kind of the exactly. heel for a lot of these uh, recent uh, problems with exchanges. Exactly, yeah. Like BTC went down two weeks ago because the, the founder got arrested in Greece, right? Right. It's, Anytime you anytime you trust someone else with your money, which you are doing if you are sending it to an exchange, that's uh, there's inherently risk, right? So if you can do this where completely decentralized, you control the keys up until the moment where the contract is being executed, it's it's significantly safer. Um, 
But to like to fall back to like how they actually structured the token sale and why I really liked it is that uh, they did something semi unique in that they had a pre registration period. So uh, four days before they started the token sale, uh, from August 9th to eleventh, they had a, a registration period where uh, you, if you wanted to buy into the ICO, you had to register. You had to go through uh, identity identity verification through a service called Civic, which is a blockchain based service for verifying identity. Right. Uh, you had to give them in advance the address that you wanted to use, and yeah. Uh, and so, how they did it is that they wanted to raise, I believe it was thirty million dollars. Uh, they took the no- thirty million dollars. They took the number of people who registered in the pre-registration period, and they uh, they divided those two numbers. And so, every single person was entitled to buy X amount of of uh, X. Uh, what's the token symbol? ZXR. ZRX, sorry. ZRX. Mm-hmm. I apologize, Will, if you ever listen to this. Um, no, we'll be editing some of these parts. Out. <laughs> um, so everyone gets everyone gets the right to buy $30 million divided by uh, X number of people who registered uh, tokens in value, right? So right. I, I don't know the exact numbers. They have a great medium post about how many people registered, how, what was the first day cap, and so on. Um that's the first day of the token sale. Anyone who wants can buy up to the up to that cap. Uh, right. The next day, they double the cap because assume, we're assuming that not everyone's going to have thirty grand or whatever it actually was the cap to buy of this token. So there's still unspent, token, there's still unpurchased tokens. Raise the cap and allow more people to buy. Right. So has that usually how uh, things are done in ICOs? Is that you have a certain amount uh, that you keep re-releasing until you've released whatever intended on doing? There's a few different ways that they're typically structured. Um, they're open ICOs. So, for example, Tezos was a non-capped open ICO. Anyone can buy it. Uh, and it lasted, I think, two weeks. And so that's when you hear about ICOs having raising like $200 million, they're always the uncapped ones. Right. Um, so there's a period of time Anyone who wants to can buy into the token during that time. They can buy however much they want. And uh, once they just continue issuing coins until coins or tokens until uh, interest interest dries up. What's probably more common are closed cap ICOs. So there's a finite number of uh, there's a finite number of coins that you're going to be distributed. First, usually they're first come first serve. So uh, for example, the bat token sale. Put on by uh, Brandon Ike was one of the key figures in that. Who's the guy who invented JavaScript? CEO of yeah, Mozilla, mm-hmm. etc. Um, in that one, they actually sold out in less than thirty seconds because if you didn't get in, they how token sales work is that there's a starting block, right? So right. every everything in blockchains has blocks which you cycle through. There, they say that from this block on, we're going to start accepting this contract. Right. This contract allows you to purchase that, right. which is basic attention. And you need that base of X amount of uh, history to really make it a little bit computationally hard to do anything crazy. And that's generally why yeah. maybe give people some background as to the nature of blockchain and why that is. Yeah. Um, well, so more so this, this is a... The, what, what I'm talking about when I talk about BAT is BAT is a token. It's not its own... It exists on the Ethereum blockchain. Right, okay. So... Uh, 
There are other you can have other ICOs which aren't tokens. So Tezos, for example, is its own chain. Right. Um, they ICO'd and they're, they it's not at all related to Bitcoin or Ethereum or anything. Completely different chain of work. Right. That and Zero uh, X and Rep or Augur and Gollum all exist on the Ethereum blockchain. So right. they've got all of that Ethereum work up until that point, and they know for uh, within a, a like an estimate of when this block is going to be. So they say like this Ethereum block, this is when you can, act, here's the contract, here's the code, here's how to run it. When this block occurs, this is the first block where we'll accept this contract right. to occur. Gotcha. And so that's where you, uh, it was actually hilarious for the bat one because that block was early because mining was quick that day. I guess more miners jumped on. Right. So people thought it was going to be like 8 a.m. West Coast time. Ended up being about 8.15 so right. people who were looking at the time and not the block number missed out right. because they literally didn't get their contract in time. And uh, the all of that got sold in, I think it was like 2.5 blocks, mm-hmm. which is less than a minute. Right. So that's that's those are the ones where you hear things like, oh, we raised like $50 million in 30 seconds. It's for that reason. It's because you filled two full Ethereum blocks mm-hmm. with and you sold this much token in that short amount of time. Perfect. Okay. Uh, let's go into uh, more of that structure where we have uh, a lot of these ICOs based on Ethereum, and, and there's a few that there are, are their own schemes uh, that have to have a, a ramp of time and, pop, and, and a big issue of making it themselves popular enough to be successful. Um, so maybe what are the advantages and disadvantages of different types of uh, methods of going forward with an ICO, whether you're going to uh, have a token uh, based on Ethereum or versus what are the other options and what are the implications in terms of timelines. I mean, some of these things, if you're going to do a totally new scheme from ground up on everything, uh, could be six months of work easily before you can offer anything to anyone. Yeah, it completely depends, right? So if you want to, if if you're going to do a, ICO, which doesn't occur on Ethereum or on some other network, uh, the hardest part is getting network effect. Right? So that's like an underrated part, which people, not a lot of people realize is really difficult in the crypto realm. Uh, all of cryptocurrencies are based on network effects. Um, and so if, for listeners who might not have know what I'm talking about, network effects are the phenomenon, phenomenon where you rely on other people. You rely your product or service relies on people using it to become usable, right? So we're talking about things like Yelp, where Yelp is 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 boring if there are no reviews on it, right? It only has value because people write reviews for Yelp. But the same thing with cryptocurrencies; they only have value because people actually run the nodes and mine the coin. If no one's running your software, your no, your currency is useless, right? Or even worse, only a few people are running your software. And you become susceptible to things like 51% attacks and other hacks, which right. don't are less of a worry if you're at the scale of Ethereum or Bitcoin, right? Right. right. Um, so that's a huge downside. And that's why it's actually really rare to see cryptocurrencies issued, which are fully off of Ethereum. Um, and it's also why we're seeing this big boon in ICOs in the last six months. It's because Ethereum makes it so much easier to start your own cryptocurrency. Right. You but, skip that six months of trying to come up with a scheme that's going to be both marketable to get interest and then be successful. Well, so that's, that's, you still have to do that. You still have to find like a, you still have to write a white paper and market it and make something that 
people actually want to use, I think is a good idea. The thing that you don't have to do is get hundreds of thousands of people to run your software in advance of the network, right? Right. So that's the that's the big thing is that there's oh, Bitcoin is like the largest supercomputer in terms of pure processing power in the world. Right. How do you ramp up to something which is which can protect your network? Well, let's take a look at some. Good, you already mentioned a couple of good um, ICOs and uses of uh, blockchain and um, cryptocurrency for uh, for let's say selling uh, space on on hard drives, etc. Uh, what are some of the other more mundane ways of taking a regular business and making use of an ICO to raise funds? <laughs> so I, I think honestly, I think that too many people are trying to ICO at this point. Right. I think we're in a dot com bubble esque hype cycle where uh, everything, everyone wants to ICO because it has great advantages. If you can drive up hype, you can make a ton of money and not have to do anything. Uh, people, investors love ICOs because of liquidity and everything we talked about before. That being said, there are a lot of cases that I don't think are, put it this way, I think if your product can work without an ICO, you should do that first. Because if you add an ICO, you add a layer of complexity, which it, it's a significant layer of complexity and also legal risk, right? Yes. Because of the kind of gray area which ICOs sit in, we don't really know what's going to happen in that regard. So, if your business only can exist with an ICO, absolutely do it. Like anything which works only in a distributed fashion or can disrupt some existing industry by making it distributed and decentralized, that's great. But if you're trying to make like if you're trying to make some random website and you're just like, oh, I'm gonna, we're going to ICO because it's an easier way to to get investor money. Yeah, that's what I see a lot of people doing is uh, seeing it as a Kickstarter without uh, the red tape and being able to say, that, hey, I have uh, this idea and uh, we're going to have uh, a new pets.com. But uh, instead of going through the regular venture capitalists, so we're going to sidestep all that and just do something called an ICO without realizing at all what, it, what an ICO is. Yeah. I, again, it's dangerous, right? Because you put yourself up to so much legal risk. And this is also a factor of, this is also a huge resultant of how uh, financial markets in North America are regulated, right? Mm-hmm. I think it was actually you who told me, like, in Norway, you can just have, you can have Kickstarter, but you get equity instead of product. Right. It's just, it all comes down to the regulatory market that you're mm-hmm. in. And that, that's why almost every uh, company who ICOs based themselves out of Switzerland or the Cayman Islands or somewhere where they, can try to mitigate this that legal risk, right? Yeah, I think in British Columbia you can do it up to uh, half a million dollars, but uh, uh, not via ICO, but just uh, being able to do a Kickstarter type of campaign for ownership of a company. But they're definitely capped and highly regulated, and it's definitely for the citizens of that jurisdiction. Yeah, I mean that's that's interesting, right? And depending on your views on protecting people versus allowing people to to take on risk and reward. It's it's really it's almost a political debate, but yeah, I mean the reason why you wouldn't do that is because five hundred thousand dollars is nothing for a startup, right? Exactly. It's yeah, it's not it's not nearly enough. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, let's get into the structure of additive only architectures, Robert. Uh, you've been patiently listening. Um, you and I uh, have uh, have gone to UBC recently for an interesting event. Maybe you can give our listeners a synopsis of of just what happened. 
Yeah, uh, as you know, uh, some of the listeners know, Adaptech, uh, the company where I'm a CTO, and uh, is a specializes in time series based systems, event source systems where a log is the actual source of truth for all transactional data. So what that means is that systems wind up uh, in smaller pieces, which are less coupled together and therefore easier and faster to code and to deliver. Also way better if you want to get to market fast because uh, there's less to coordinate, less to QA because frankly things aren't mixed together in quite the same way and there are less dependencies. And so we uh, are currently working on a, an event sourcing as a service platform. Uh, where there's some very, very alpha tooling available. And so we were going, it's one of the experiments which uh, we used to get to a, a, a good product there. Uh, we were uh, joining that UVC 2017 so-called Blockathon, it's a blockchain-themed uh, hackathon. And the reason why we went there is because uh, the blockchain, if you think that a perfect record of all things Timestamped perfect record, a perfect audit trail of everything that happened in the past, uh, is a, a natural fit for blockchain technology. In a nutshell, and this is something one of the, the, the judges uh, mentioned in conversation afterwards. If you have a, um, uh, it doesn't matter how good your validation of things you put on the blockchain is, if the data you put there are incomplete or not meaningful, then uh, you really don't have a, a, a very good. You risk not having a very good product and so we happen to be uh, the, the, the hypothesis was we are a very natural fit for that kind of technology because we uh, with the process called event storming we get all business centric events uh, which belong to an entire solution and imagine if one could put all or only the relevant ones on the, of those on a right. so what you're saying is uh, that uh, the things that you want yeah. on the on the blockchain is a subset of the uh, events in a regular system yes and what we bring to the table is the ability to build any blockchain application very, very fast and very, very cost effective and very comprehensive, right? And we, we were going there to experiment with that a little. Uh, so uh, we went there and we didn't know anybody on the team. Uh, you and I were assigned to seven folks, really great uh, mix of uh, sheer fluke. I mean, this was uh, one other developer and uh, four business folks who, who put together a, a really nice, really winning presentation and um, we, so uh, we, we introduced that technique in the event storming you ran that at the time Adam uh, where we brought where we, where we uh, elicited what that those requirements are the system was one for getting buy-in sorry for getting um, authorization to collect medical data with an audit trail and everything around that for medical research uh, so we put that together. If you're interested in how event storming works, there, there's a site called webeventstorming.com, uh, which we run, which gives, uh, has some links to and gives an overview and some tools around that. And um, then we use an alpha version of our event sourced uh, tooling in order to make an API very quickly. And well, basically the rest of the hackathon was working on that presentation and on getting meaningful test data into that. We had an API working end to end at the end of it, the only team that had, and we won the blockathon. So it was a good validation of event sourcing and of the adaptive event source platform tooling, uh, which we which we use some aspects of it to, to, to win this thing. So I was very happy with the outcome because it's true, we are able to uh, put together uh, pretty much any blockchain a blockchain-based application or service uh, a lot quicker than you might expect and a lot more cost-effective. So 
we also have uh, the open source project Noda, which allows us to demonstrate uh, what, what one would do when constructing such a thing. And uh, this is something that we work on our meetup. Maybe you can elaborate on Noda. Noda stands for none of the above. It's a yeah, okay. It's a secure online voting system, which is kind of uh, it's, it's not exciting as such. Even one of the sort of examples for the Ethereum uh, for Ethereum contracts is actually some sort of secure voting system. Uh, but uh, the thing is that the true selling point of none of the above is it has a built-in feature. Uh, whatever choices you put before the electorate is actually. Uh, the system, you agree by using Nota that the system adds one additional choice, which is um, none of the above. And the rule is whenever more than 50% of the electorate choose none of the above, what you get is uh, the referendum is automatically nil and void and you have to go back to the electorate, run another election uh, and come up with better choices for the electorate. So the, the, the area of expertise of none of the above, the core domain, if you will, is that the goal is to have better choices for the electorate. But of course, um, you also want to make sure that nobody tampers with the election results. So um, it's a good candidate for a blockchain where um, it, it doesn't have that at the moment, but it's designed uh, to put eventually uh, the, um, the referenda and uh, the election in, on a blockchain where it can be validated and so on and so forth. Again, it's a fully event-sourced system. Uh, we are working on techniques which uh, anonymizes the uh, the um, voting and yet uh, records the results in a way where it can't be tampered with and you can sort of see what happened and so on and so forth. Right. So, um, Eric, maybe from, from your perspective in terms of looking at the structure of CKRS and event source systems, um, basing a stream that maybe part of it is put into some sort of a a blockchain for accountability purposes or otherwise or distribution. Um, how, uh, how does that move the two worlds of centralized applications and decentralized applications together? Yeah, I mean, event storming and CQRS are, they're actually kind of, there's, these ideas are more common than I think a lot of people realize. And I think that that's because there's, uh, a lot of people have different names for them. Um, but if you look at Ethereum contracts, like every transaction in a blockchain is essentially an event. There's a fully separated read and write model, right? Like there's no, it's completely, there's absolutely no way to read from the same way that you write. Um, so these ideas are inherently there. It's just, if you have a linear event stream, the challenge is, is that blockchains are inherently asynchronous because of the nature, right? Right. Um, all of these problems come down to like Byzantine fault on tolerant networks, right? Right. Um, and these, uh, that makes it hard to create a blockchain out of an append only log where you require the state of every event to be linear. Right. Um, and so things like Bitcoin and Ethereum use this, solve this by using Merkle trees or things similar to Merkle trees where the ordering of events doesn't matter. It's only that you have received all of the events. Right in total, right? That's the property of the Merkle tree, which makes it better than just like hashing the previous thing. And That's right. Hash, right. You can do that with a block, like the blockchain and Bitcoin because every transaction is like fully settled in and like there's a close to the block before you insert it, right? Right. So you know exactly what's going to be there and there's, there's no race condition which can occur. Right. 
but the race conditions are interesting because we face that in non-blockchain uh, problems in, in stream-based architectures where you have concurrent uh, concurrent entities trying to be updated and uh, uh, you know we move away from optimistic or pessimistic locking to get uh, consensus and we can do things called merges and other things like that so there, this is the gray area that we're kind of after because there's certainly ways out of these uh, certain you know schemes that Ethereum has versus Bitcoin yeah I mean even if you have a like a stream based system as, assuming that you haven't been like severely hacked, you're still not facing like the Byzantine Generals problem. Um, for listeners who might not know, the Byzantine Generals problem is basically uh, you're, you have a series of generals who are trying to attack a city. Uh, how do you? Some generals might think the best move is to attack. Others may choose to may think the best move is to retreat. You don't necessarily know all the generals or know that you can trust every general. So how do you make sure that? Uh, how do you decide what to do or not to do in that situation? Which is obviously analogous to software. Is if you have an event which occurred and some some people say that it occurred, some people don't. Um, it's uh, if if you pass that event, you can say like in Bitcoin that means that you sent a transaction which didn't actually occur, right? Right. And so, like the classic way to get past the Byzantine generals uh, problem is. If you have every, you have a pool of trusted nodes, and every, if every trusted node uh, says that something is one way, it's probably that way. Right. And then over time, as nodes like gain trust, you just add them to the trusted pool. Right. Um, and that that ultimately is the biggest the biggest difference between a stream based event system and these kind of decentralized distributed systems is that there isn't an adversary trying to corrupt the network. Right. Unless you've been hacked, and then in that case, you've got bigger problems. Exactly. We don't necessarily rely on the order of events in the uh, in, in the context of putting that on, that on a blockchain. Uh, maybe, for example, if you look at a referendum in Nota, uh, this is a, it reaches a sort of a finite state uh, where nothing else will ever happen to that particular referendum with the um, with the ID one two three. So, in that sense, you could say that the transaction is completed, and once that happens, there will be no further. All that matters is that all the events, um, the order of the events doesn't matter. It's just uh, the number on, and the content of the events, if you will, uh, matters for the purposes of, uh, of verifying this. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of, that's the same thing with Bitcoin, right? It doesn't matter what order the transactions happen. And depending on which uh, like mining pool you send your transaction to, they'll almost certainly be out of order. Because each pool receives things in a, each pool might receive things from different wallets and then uh, gossip those transactions to the rest of the pool. Yeah. Um, th- again, this is like these. These are the problems solved by like Merkle trees, right? These what uh, order doesn't quite matter. So I guess there's a, a deeper look at uh, things that Paxos and Raft try to solve, or just the uh, traditional consistency and ordering of the stream, but uh, now we want to embrace the disordered nature of them. And uh, Robert, maybe you can elaborate on how event sourcing uh, really doesn't need an ordered stream, but maybe needs to know that certain things within those streams came one before the other. And of course, so let's take a look at the idea of having substreams for it, which would essentially give you uh, different entities in a, in a typical software system. 
and how that plays into a Merkle tree. Well, uh, as Eric mentioned earlier, the notion of a transaction is key to understanding how an event source system uh, on the transactional side doesn't necessarily uh, to, to talk about the scope of ordering, right? Uh, so um, it, 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 it does matter, but within the same without, within the same transaction, it's crucial. You do need to know that uh, I don't know um, something has been created, order has been created before there can be an order item added event, for example. Uh, so the, the order does matter a lot in the context of event source systems, but that's in the context of uh, making uh, of building the state of that state machine which makes for the transaction uh, so that you can do the next decisions in your in, in, in your application or in your API or your service, whatever. Um, or for that matter, that you build the correct read models at the other end, uh, read model being anything uh, where people can see, like screens or, or reports or st things of that nature. And uh, But then uh, if you duplicate that, you have a, a kind of a bridge uh, into a, a blockchain-based system, then it doesn't matter anymore. You have that dotted line where you can verify that this is in fact that event and it's there and they're all there. Uh, then uh, then uh, it doesn't matter anymore. So the transactional build, uh, running a system, it very much matters. But in the context, uh, if you then move that into a blockchain, which has a completely different system, uh, I mean a completely different purpose, then um, you can it, does, it no longer matters in that sense. Right, so this is kind of going to the eventual consistency yes. arguments of, of why you want to have CQRS and event sourcing in there so you can take advantage of these uh, of different schemes of dealing with eventual consistency issues. Yeah, you use a different approach depending on the context within you wor which you work, right? It's a uh, it's not. This is something which is, I think, important to to to, to realize. Uh, you can theoretically build an entire applications on on on, uh, on on say Ethereum, but it's kind of really clumsy. It's a worldwide kind of singleton, uh, not very high performance, and 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 uh, costs a lot. Of, it costs a lot of gas and so on, right? So uh, it, it doesn't scale in that sense. So uh, you're really looking at the interface between your actual application which can scale and does all the other good things which you do when you do uh, uh, sort of microservices and other software development and somewhere there there's an interface where the part which is which needs to be validated is put on the, on the chain right and uh, in the context of building your transactional system and your reporting and your bi integration whatever else it is your machine learning all that um, it, it's a different world where things like the order matters and and, and other things whereas on the blockchain less so it has a different purpose uh, when you put things on that chain. Okay, excellent. Um, yeah, you're, you're cutting out a little bit there, um, but I think that your big point was um, the, the issue of scaling on the Ethereum network and yes, uh, how does that? How do you actually make, get that to work? And I, I you kind of cut out, but I believe you were talking about uh, checkpointing state into the blockchain. An off-chain off competition? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's like uh, just generally scaling limitations of, of, of blockchain applications. Yeah, I mean, so that that's like, that's like, we're currently under the most, like, the, we're currently doing like a dumb mining on pretty much every blockchain in that like every blockchain currently modulo a couple attempts are using a proof of work mining still, um, which is 
basically, like, if we ever evolve past proof-of-work mining, which we probably will in the next three, four years, uh, look for orders of magnitude better processing times in networks like Ethereum. Um, so if, if, for people who don't know what proof-of-work mining is, proof-of-work mining is essentially, uh, for example, like how proof-of-work mining in Bitcoin works is that if for each block, you have all the data about the block, all the transactions, um, block ID, etc. And then you have something called a nonce. Um, this nonce is a random number, and you essentially hash like this blob of JSON metadata until you end up with a Blake 256 hash, which has which fits a condition. The condition is typically like has like five trailing zeros or something, mm-hmm. but the difficulty adjusts over time. Um, but to do this, you essentially choose a random num- number to be your nonce, hash, see if it fits a condition, and then repeat until you have you've met this condition. And this takes like huge amounts of computational resources and takes it can take a long time if the difficulty is high relative to the hash rate and has a bunch of problems, right? Um, with systems like uh, proof of stake, which is currently being investigated uh, in the Ethereum network by a quite brilliant researcher by the name of Vlad, I cannot for the life of me pronounce his last name. Uh, it's things like that'll be like a that'll be a significant increase in the performance of the Ethereum network if we can get proof of stake. Uh, but the big one is zero knowledge proofs, uh, which is kind of like the golden goose of the crypto realm right now. In that, if you have like a concrete, um, formally provable, scalable zero knowledge proof implementation, your blockchain will just be better than pretty much all others, other than network effects and you have to get adoption. But it'll be the most technically impressive blockchain. Uh, and so what a zero-knowledge proof is, is uh, it shifts the onus of proving that a transaction happened from the miner to the person submitting the transaction. So if I wanted to, if I wanted to prove to you that I know where the fire safe in your house is without telling the world where your, the fire safe in your house is, I could say, like, there's a sock. There's a green sock on top of your fire safe. And so if I were to know that, it means that I would have to know not only exactly where your fire safe is in your house, but I would have had to see it recently to know that that sock is there, right? So if I can tell you that piece of information, that's something where no one else in the world knows where your fire safe is, but you can be extremely certain that I know exactly where your fire safe is. Right. Um, so those kind of no- those kind of proofs uh, reduce the computational time to mine a block into the single-digit milliseconds. Right. Um, which allows for obviously significant increases in scale, both in computational capacity, because now miners can whip out, they can process proofs in literally orders of magnitude less time than in proof of work. And so that, that'll be, that's going to be a huge increase once we actually get that nailed down. Right. You know, you've now probably created green sock <laughs> coin. Yeah. For some one of our listeners out there. Green sock. Yeah. <laughs> Give Adam all your green socks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're starting a green sock uh, startup soon. Um, anyway. <laughs> yeah. If we want to talk a little bit more about scaling. Yeah, we should like, actually. Current uh, methods. Uh, in the near future, this is where projects like Gollum come in and are really exciting. So Gollum's a uh, token which uh, exists in the Ethereum network, which allows you to offload computation to third parties. So essentially, if you mine Gollum, uh, you are renting out your CPU for other people to do computations on. Um, 
And so the power of this is that let's say let's say that me and you wanted to play a game of formally verifiable chess on the blockchain. We want to be able to prove that neither one hacked the software and is altering the outcome. For a game like chess, it's not really relevant because like you can you'll notice if I just like my pawn goes mm-hmm. six spaces and changes state, but it's a it's a contrived example. Um, what we could do is we can check the we can have n number of workers in Gollum do the computation to process each move and compute a new state. Then we can check we can periodically checkpoint that state into the blockchain. Right. And so all of the hard computation occurs by these Gollum nodes. And we can say we can even do like a consensus mechanism to make sure that like okay, okay, did all of our Gollum nodes agree on what happened? Uh, or if you or I suspect that some computation was had something weird going on, we can ask for a recomputation of that state, right? Right. And we can we pay to have that happen because we're paying the golem workers. But at any time, if we think something's something's up, we can get new random independent workers to verify those that computation. Um, and then, since you're only checkpointing state into the blockchain, it's significantly cheaper and both computationally and from a gas standpoint, than actually having the Ethereum blockchain compute each move, right? Right, right, exactly. Um, it has uh, interesting um, implications for uh, for edge networks and other things where we decentralize entirely uh, access to the internet, for example, um, especially when it means uh, being able to run a business uh, or have uh, some point of sale system be available while uh, the internet connection is down uh, by having essentially a repeated set of servers within each person's cell phone that happens to be in the local Wi-Fi. Yeah, exactly. And this kind of like this kind of off-chain scaling is actually a relatively common current solution in the blockchain world for solving these scaling issues. For, so for example, like um, segregated witness or SegWit just passed last night on the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, so that, that just activated and the first transaction went through. But what segregated witnesses is, it's a, think of it essentially as a payment channel between two entities. So if me and you send each other Bitcoin a lot, like daily or whatever, and we don't want to have to pay a transaction fee first per send, currently the transaction fees for Bitcoin are buck, buck 80 or something, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, what we can do is we can use Lightning, which is a, a utility built on top of segregated witness, to open a payment channel between the two of us. It costs one transaction to open this payment channel, send as many transactions between the two of us as you want, thousands, whatever. Uh, and then we spend one transa- we pay for one transaction on the blockchain to close that payment channel. And then um, essentially all of the payments between the two of us in that sta- in that channel, are processed as in those two transactions. So right. it resolves all of the payments in that history. So you're basically scaling out that expense yeah. of uh, having to pay buck eighty or whatever it is. It, you pay that buck eighty, but if you're doing a thousand transactions between the two people, right? It's you, you would pay if you were doing a thousand transactions and it cost buck eighty per transaction, you're spending one hundred eighty bucks. Whereas if you're using a payment channel, it's one to open, one to close. Right, exactly. Spending three sixty. Yeah. So, Eric, tell us a little bit more about Bitcoin Cash and what that's all about. Yeah. So, um, Bitcoin Cash was a, the result of a hard fork which occurred in Bitcoin, I think, two or three weeks ago. Um, for like I was saying earlier, because 
Satoshi Nakamoto is dead and there's no true universally agreed upon like creator of Bitcoin, everything's kind of a crapshoot of people trolling each other on the internet and trying to figure out solutions. So uh, when these trolls disagree with each other enough and when there's enough people who think that something should happen, hard forks happen in Bitcoin. And so Bitcoin Cash is one of those, is an example of a lot of people think that um, Bitcoin needs to be scaled because $1.80 transaction fees are just ridiculously high. Right. How do we lower that? There are people who think, as we just talked about with SegWit, that that's a good solution to scaling. Um, there are other people, and these people are the ones who decided to fork out Bitcoin Cash, who think that the easier way to scale is to increase the number of transactions per block in Bitcoin. So the transaction fee which you which you pay to uh, in Bitcoin is purely de- decided on uh, motivating a miner to put your transaction in a block. So it's a, it's really a free market in that you can submit a transaction with like a five cent uh, fee, but no miner will take it because there's tens of there's hundreds of transactions which are willing to pay a buck eighty or a buck fifty or whatever the current rate is. Exactly. Right. So how do you lower that? More blo- more transactions per block, and so this makes miners happy because. If you're t- making if you're making less per transaction, but you have significantly more transactions, you're going to make more, right. um, and it would lower the fees. Is the idea? So the current block size in Bitcoin, as of right now, is one megabyte, and that used to be smaller, and it has a precedent of scaling over time. And there are actually a lot of people who make the argument that Satoshi Nakamoto's original vision in the outline of the Bitcoin paper was to gradually scale. Uh, the block size over time to follow Moore's law and the cost of storage because one thing that increasing block size does is increase the size of the Bitcoin network. Um, so to get back to point, the what Bitcoin Cash is is a hard fork where they changed that one integer which says the size of a block is one megabyte to eight megabytes. Right. And so you can have significantly more transactions in each block. Uh, this has this has mixed effects. So far, the Bitcoin Cash network has not died off yet, which is a very good sign. Um, but these things have like a lot of like social imp- like a lot of social implications and implications as to uh, what happens in meat space affecting these networks. Because now miners need to choose whether they're going to they're going to mine Bitcoin Cash or classic Bitcoin. Right. Uh, they can't really mine both at the same time. Um, so what we saw for a little while is the very few people were mining Bitcoin Cash. Only like the true believers were mining Bitcoin Cash uh, because the difficulty on it was very high. Yeah. And so because this difficulty is very high, it means that you don't make very much mining Bitcoin Cash. Difficulty in Bitcoin mining reduces over time. So now, uh, two days ago, we saw Bitcoin Cash was 3x more profitable than regular Bitcoin to mine. Right. And then right now what's actually happening, which is interesting, is we're seeing a, a continuous switching. It's switched at least three times in the last few days between the, which one's more profitable, between Bitcoin Classic and Bitcoin Cash, as these difficulties bounce up and down. Right. So it's kind of yet to be seen what's going to happen with Bitcoin Cash. Um, there are some people who think that these hard forks are attempts to hijack the Bitcoin network. And because you have all these hard forks, it leads to the definition of what is Bitcoin, and a lot of people have different answers for that. Uh, and a lot of people are very against hard forks. Me personally, I think I'm for hard forks because I think experimentation 
is the only way that these things are going to ever scale. And what gives them value is them to actually be able to spend Bitcoin. Uh, other people think that Bitcoin is gold and it should cost you $500 to send Bitcoin because you know that it's immutable and yeah. Um, you're paying for the security. You're paying for the security and the immutability and the fact that it, it's rock solid state. Uh, that's a fair viewpoint too. But these experiments like SegWit and SegWit2x and Bitcoin Cash are all tr- attempts to solve this problem. Right. Yeah, so maybe we can close off with the predictions for the next couple of years uh, on the two sides of stream-based architectures. One uh, from from Eric, obviously, on the cryptocurrency side and blockchain, and then from you, Robert, uh, based on uh, you know maybe some things about artificial intelligence, machine learning, and all the other applications of uh, stream-based, and uh, of course for regular line of business applications yeah. too. So um, go ahead, Robert. Maybe see, maybe you can for, uh, do a, a forecast of what the landscape's going to be like over the next. Uh, one or two years, given that uh, you know, event sourcing and CKRS is being used at uh, places like uh, Netflix and uh, yeah, uh, gonna, and LinkedIn, etc. Yeah, I mean, you got to look at why those folks got in uh, got into this, right? I mean, you have uh, for, for many years uh, people have done relational databases because storage space was expensive, and everybody's been taught uh, to do things like that at uh, programming school. And uh, the reason why the big guys were moving in a direction where they do more event-enabled systems instead either fully event-sourced uh, or, or um, uh, systems which are certainly communicating with other systems by events is because it scales a lot better. Uh, you cannot uh, attain true global internet scale in uh, in a practical way if you, if you just have a central server in the sky. You can brute force a lot, but you, you hit pretty much the wall, and we see that with some of our clients who talk to us just because they need a way out of a situation where it doesn't matter anymore how much money they throw at new hardware and faster and, and so forth. It, it doesn't really scale, so they go to an approach which is proven to scale. You put that together with uh, the flawless audit trails and the natural fit with, uh, with blockchain, uh, you probably see a uh, a beginning of the industry to shift more in that direction. The, the ideas are new event sourcing has been around for what, uh, 10 at years. At least from the, something like that. from the approach yeah. of doing CKRS and yeah. event sourcing, it's been, it, it's been around 10 years. Yeah. And I think Greg Young has a presentation yeah. of uh, 10 years of uh, DDD and CKRS as a, as a history lesson for people. Yeah, and you, you see a certain maturing of things. That ten years seems to be that magic cutoff after which things turn more mainstream if the right forces are in play. And what we see uh, with that uh, distributed ledger uh, and uh, current uh, trend, uh, together with uh, the need to scale and to, uh, to to produce software more more cost effectively, uh, I think it's just going to grow in popularity and go far more mainstream than it already is. Yeah. Okay. And uh, Eric, what do you see? I think you touched on a couple of the things that you wanted to see out of the industry, but uh, what's your prediction as to what's actually going to happen over the next one year or two years in crypto? Very hard question to answer, but uh, do your best. And we'll revisit this episode a year from now. Okay. We can mark off all the places where I was wildly off. Yeah. I think the biggest thing we're going to see is uh, more clear regulation on these industries, which I think is uh, as much as like the crypto cipher anarchists. The, the ones who have been at it from day one uh, hate. 
probably healthy because uh, anytime you're raising money, and especially because literally anyone can invest in an ICO, there's nothing stopping you from creating a wallet, buying some Bitcoin and investing. Um, We probably should see more regulation to that regard. Uh, In terms of progress and what I think will still be around, anything at any moment could just blow up, right? That's the nature of crypto. I think Bitcoin will still be around. I think Ethereum will still be around. I think a Litecoin will be around. I think Monero will still be around. Um, everything else is a toss-up. I think that the current challenges are about creating killer applications. Because like, people might own some Bitcoin or own some Ethereum, but ask someone when's the last time they interacted with an Ethereum contract. Yeah. Most people aren't even going to realize that you... like. Ethereum has contracts. They just right. think of it as like, oh, this digital money I own, which makes me like a crazy return on my investment. Yeah. And so I think that that's, ultimately, I think that's the big challenge for crypto is that it has all these valuations. It has all this, uh, it's supposedly worth all these billions of dollars. It's great as an investment vehicle, but at a certain point, what makes it worth that investment vehicle? What makes it worth that investment? Yeah, Eric, that's, yeah, that, that's sort of a theme, right? We saw that, Adam and I saw that at that Blockathon very much. So it was very much a, what kind of killer apps can you do with it, as in a, a very much part of that whole series of experiments. And uh, that, that's, it, it, there is an element of a solution in search of a problem. Yeah, um, and I think it, it depends what you want, right? Because we, we've got things like Filecoin and Web 3.0 uh, on the horizon, which will potentially like the upside of them is completely changing how the internet works and changing it from this thing where uh, you have like these main pipes around the globe, which send content. And if you, uh, depending on your CDN structure and so on, uh, you go from, you go from getting served data potentially from like California or something to getting served from someone's laptop who has the cache data in the, like the floor above you. Right. And so, like, that's potentially a game changer, both in terms of latency and throughput and uh, just the availability of the Internet. Um, but it, it could go in any way. I, I think that, like, it's good that more people are getting exposed to it. Um, but I think that people need to be realistic as to what can actually happen. Yeah. Which there's, is, there's, a, there's a lot of people that, uh, that are still doing... Let's not forget that there's still a lot of traditional ways of doing business out there and when you're talking about uh, investing to certain uh, larger uh, entities they have no idea what what cryptocurrency is uh, how it works and uh, they see it as black magic which they don't uh, they just dismiss still I think that's changing though I think it is changing but I mean uh, even just you know, recent conversations with people uh, you know where while looking for investments and other things, you go, you get across, you come across a lot of people from different angles, and it's it's still staggering as uh, as to how many people have no idea that uh, Bitcoin itself even exists, which is which is hard to believe, uh, for, especially from some of the people that you would think would know. Yeah, that's definitely true. It's uh, it's definitely still early days. Yeah. All right. Well, we're gonna have to check up on those um, predictions. Yes. Maybe you need to yield close off. Sure. Yeah. So we'll check out. Or sorry, we'll check up with you in, I guess, uh, another year and see what was right, what was wrong. Uh, 
Um, we're all billionaires by then. That'd be great. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, um, thanks very much for being on the show, uh, Eric and Robert. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Robert, and uh, thanks for thank doing you. that uh, blockathon with me. That was a that was a fun win. And, uh, it proves that these two sides it was really inspiring right? there were some really interesting people and the, the whole atmosphere and so on I uh, just wanted to use this opportunity to thank the organizers for laying that on uh, it, it, it was a great day out we had a really wonderful time absolutely it was really well put together and there was some uh, uh, big wigs in there from the people that from the late 80s were looking at the mathematics of what we currently know uh, about blockchain, which was pretty neat. They were from all over the world, um, uh, MIT and other things uh, in the show notes. I think we can list yep. some of those people. Oh, we'll make sure nice. to list the uh, the name of the team members as well. Oh, we'll yes, absolutely. Link out to them. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. All right, Robert. That's it. You there? Okay, so that's it. So we can probably record the names yep. of those people later and just place them in. All right, we've got to get to the meetup. Yes, you don't, don't have to stop your browser.